Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. President Biden sanctions Israeli settlers in the West Bank as he gives the green light for retaliation against the killing of three American soldiers. Their remains will arrive back in the U.S. today with the president and family members bearing witness. As the Israel-Hamas war rages on in southern Gaza, an unexpected guest shows up on the front lines. This, as the U.N. agency providing aid to the Strip warns it could soon shut down operations. Months of negotiations around a border security deal now coming to a close. Senate leader Chuck Schumer saying details available soon. But mounting GOP opposition may mean it's already at a dead end. Can South Carolina's open primary give presidential candidate Nikki Haley an advantage? Has she done enough to court Democrats there who may vote in the other party's election? A reporter's update. Earnings reports are out for several major companies. We take a look at the number and what it means for your portfolio with the host of Entity Business. It's Groundhog Day. Will we get six more weeks of winter or an early spring? Plus, a look at Punxsutawney Phil's track record. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and happy Friday. It's February 2nd. Yes, made it to the end of the week. And that's a rare move by the Biden administration against those Israeli settlers. Right. I mean, that's been a problem. And many um, of those settlers, many are very well known to law enforcement there as well. But of course, you know, it's still a problem. So even though Israel is America's closest ally, it's still going to be called out. Right. But um, today's top news actually deals with something slightly different. President Biden will join the families of the three soldiers killed in Jordan last week as the remains are set to arrive back in the U.S. today. Also present, uh, also present will be the First Lady Jill Biden, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Air Force General Charles Q. Brown, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And the president has green lighted a response to the deadly drone attack by an Iranian backed militia. The defense secretary is vowing forceful action while apologizing for his secret hospitalization. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. Amid public backlash over his lack of transparency, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on Thursday said he's sorry to the American public and to his boss, President Biden, for not telling them about his hospitalization over prostate cancer surgery for days. Watch. My first instinct was to keep it private. I never liked uh, burdening others with my problems. I've apologized directly to President Biden. And I've told him that I'm deeply sorry for not letting him know immediately. Austin's hospitalization sparked backlash, partially because it came at a time during what he himself called a dangerous moment in the Middle East. The White House on Thursday said that President Biden had made his choices and his decision on how to respond to this Sunday drone attack in Jordan that killed three American service members. And as the White House says we are going to move out, Secretary Austin said it would be a multi-tiered response. You know, I don't think the, uh, the adversaries are of a one-and-done mindset, uh, and so uh, they have a lot of capability, I have a lot more. 
Meanwhile, President Biden on Thursday issued a new executive order sanctioning four Israeli settlers in the West Bank who have been accused of attacking Palestinians in that occupied territory. While Biden argues that the attacks could undermine the viability of a two-state solution, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu quickly criticized Biden's decision, saying that the vast majority of Israeli settlers in the West Bank are law-abiding citizens. Meanwhile, also on Thursday, President Biden campaigned in Dearborn, Michigan, a place with one of the largest Muslim and Arab American populations in the United States. The group, which is growing increasingly critical of President Biden's handling of the war in Gaza, could be critical in the upcoming 2024 presidential election. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. Joining me now for more on the U.S.'s plan of retaliation is Brent Sadler. He's a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense. Good morning, Brent. It's good to see you. So first, what do we know about what Biden is planning in terms of retaliation? What could this look like? Well, well, it's very hard to really know because those are so sensitive of plans. But what we can do is look at what he's done in the recent past. And some of the indications are right now that they've been leaking information, which is a pattern of behavior of this administration, to forewarn the adversary, and I think in an effort to mitigate the loss of human life. That also, unfortunately, has a very unfortunate side effect of greatly diminishing the deterrent or the punishment aspect of these attacks that he may be already have authorized. And again, the name of the game or the objective of these attacks is one to deter future attacks against U.S. forces in Syria, Iraq, and throughout the wider Middle East by Iran and its proxies. The more that he telegraphs what he intends to do, the less likely that they're going to actually achieve that. It is hoped that they will attack widely uh, and go after individuals like the IRGRC commanders that are directing these attacks. Hmm. So, and the attack in Jordan, it happened over the weekend. So is there a worry that the longer Time, the more time passes and the longer the White House waits, the more <clears throat> excuse me, preparation the, and time militant groups there actually have to move their assets or prepare. Um, what, what is the worry there? Well, I think it signals again that, that this administration is extremely reluctant to exercise any, I guess, self-defense in a broader sense, also deterrence against Iran. Uh, I think that's very indicative of what we're seeing. And you're right, the longer that they delay, the more time for the proxies and the Iranian forces that are in the Middle East to reposition, to bolster their defenses, or to redirect their attacks into another vector that we're not anticipating. So about um, you and many, you know, many voices in Congress also calling for a direct strike in Iran, but at the same time, there are analysts that are saying that if Iran was to try and maybe rein in the militant groups in the Middle East, that would actually damage their reputation and it would, um, and its ability to lead that axis of resistance. And at the same time, it's considering that um, Iran has varying degrees of control over different militant groups. So do you think Iran would actually be able to stop the attacks in the Middle East? I don't think it's really something that Iran would expend any of its uh, its credibility nor its military might to try to defend against. The proxies are largely on their own, as well as their paramilitary forces, the IGRC. And, and, and myself, my assessment is that it, this is not the time to go launch strikes into Iran proper. There's a lot of dissent. There were very large protests in the months leading up to October 7th. There still is a lot of dissent in Iran 
the last thing that the U.S. needs to do is to provide to provoke and to unify the Iranian people together along with the, the mullahs in Tehran. Better to go after what's really at risk here and really what the issue, and that is Iran's proxies and Iran's nefarious influence network that it runs through its paramilitary forces like the IRGC. Going after those folks, I think, will be very effective. And it's what we saw at the late, in the last days of the Trump administration when they killed General Soleimani, who had been directing as a general in the IGRC many attacks against Americans, and it all dropped off after that. Well, thank you so much, Brent Sadler, for your insights here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, very important stuff. And, you know, according to the Atlantic Council, this strike in Jordan really struck a nerve for Washington, and that's the first time that a U.S. service member was killed by a drone. Right. Important things here. Yeah. And as intense battles unfold in the southern Gaza Strip, Israel's defense minister makes a timely visit to the front lines of the war. This comes as the U.N. agency that provides humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip says it could soon shut down. And today's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. In a video released by Israeli forces on Thursday, soldiers in the 55th Brigade are seen battling terrorists in Khan Yunus in the southern Gaza Strip. And an apparent smoke grenade was set off nearby, which allowed the troops to move to new positions without being seen. After two months of operations in Khan Yunus, Israel's 55th Brigade has now left southern Gaza and has been replaced by other forces in the area. Israel's defense minister visited troops in Khan Yunus and told them they must persevere until they complete their missions. And it is much more difficult for Hamas, believe me. They don't have weapons, they don't have ammunition. They have 10,000 eliminated terrorists and another 10,000 terrorists who are wounded and not functioning. This is a serious blow that erodes their abilities. And he said Israeli forces will also reach Rafah, which is even further south than Khan Yunus near the Egyptian border. But despite such heavy losses, Hamas terrorists still managed to continue fighting, releasing two videos on Thursday showing multiple attacks on Israeli troops. And residents of the Gaza Strip appear to be caught in the middle, now wondering where their next meal will be coming from. On Thursday, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, which provides humanitarian aid to Gaza, said it could shut down operations at the end of February if funding doesn't resume. Multiple countries stopped funding UNRWA after an Israeli intelligence report accused UNRWA of having 190 terrorists as employees. Gaza residents shared their thoughts. If the UNRWA stops, there will be no food, drink or life in the Gaza Strip. There would be no aid or anything in Gaza. Also on Thursday, residents in Israel called for an immediate release of the 136 hostages who remain in the Gaza Strip. It's three months before, uh, since they were kidnapped and uh, we, we're in Israel. People cannot, cannot live, cannot sleep, cannot breathe. We feel the pain, we feel the stress, we feel the tragedy. It's really a disaster. On late Wednesday evening, Israel's prime minister said Israel is still actively working on negotiations to release the hostages. And he added that any proposal will not come at any cost to Israel, such as ending the war or releasing prisoners. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
In Europe, the farmer protests spread to more countries after France and Belgium. On Thursday, farmers in Ireland demonstrated in solidarity with their European counterparts. They formed tractor convoys expressing their frustration with policies made by officials who are far removed from the reality of day-to-day -day farming, as the head of the Irish Farmers Association said in a statement. In France, where the protests first began, the two major farmers' unions have lifted their roadblocks after the French Prime Minister unveiled a new set of measures they see as tangible progress. For two weeks now, the farmers have blocked motorways across the country to protest excessive green regulations, taxes and unfair competition from abroad. Demonstrations continue today in Belgium and the Netherlands where farmers have blocked several border crossings between the two countries. Dutch authorities have advised against traveling to Belgium today if possible. And we could see details of the Senate's bipartisan border deal as soon as today. This is House Republicans intensify their resistance. Entities Melina Weiskup has more from the Capitol Hill with the latest developments. After months of negotiations in the Senate, a highly contested border bill will soon be released. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer saying they plan to post the full text of the bill no later than Sunday. These challenges at the border and in Ukraine and the Middle East are just too great. The leader is pushing for a vote by next week. But with growing opposition to the deal, it's unclear how much Republican support it will get. You're asking me a question I can't answer right now, which is what is the, the fate of it? House Republicans stand in strong opposition to it, pointing to rumors that it would allow for thousands of illegal crossings. That they want to allow 1.8 million individuals to still come into the country. You're legalizing the illegal activity that's taking place. Is that it allows for 5,000 entrants per day. That's, that's just, that's a non-starter. I don't even know why the Senate thinks that's a starter. Supporters, meanwhile, have tried to debunk this claim. So it's never been about codifying 1.8 million. That's patently untrue. It will be proven untrue in the text. Even if it can pass the Democrat-controlled Senate, its fate is grim in the House. Speaker Mike Johnson saying bluntly it has no chance of getting a vote. Democrat Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries leaving the door open to taking matters into their own hands. Would you consider... Uh, trying to get around Speaker Johnson if he doesn't bring it up to the floor. We have to evaluate the substance of the legislation before we decide the best procedural course of action. Now, the broader question here is if they aren't able to get this border security deal to President Biden's desk, how will Congress move forward with aid to Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan? Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin made a surprise appearance yesterday at a rally in Texas. The rally was held by a convoy of truckers calling for greater border security. Thank you so much for being the activists, for being the hardworking, independent, patriotic Americans that you are. Hundreds participated in the rally near Austin, Texas. Palin and other speakers criticized the Biden administration for failing to secure the southern border. The Take Our Border Back convoy began a cross-country journey from Virginia Beach this past Monday. The convoy will end at Eagle Pass, Texas, near the U.S.-Mexico border tomorrow. The U.S. Border Patrol arrested about 2 million migrants at the border in fiscal year 2023. This is similar to the record-breaking totals during President Biden's first two years in office. And coming up, several people were killed when a small plane crashed into a trailer park in Florida. We're bringing you the latest details on that. 
With an election matchup between President Biden and former President Trump seemingly taking shape, we take a look at a new CNN poll that breaks down public sentiment about the contest. Will Democrats in the Palmetto State turn out for presidential hopeful Nikki Haley in the primary? A reporter gives insight into whether this crossover voting can help her close a huge gap in the polls. That's coming up. Good to have you back. Several people were killed Thursday evening after a small plane crashed into a trailer park in Clearwater, Florida. Authorities say they're in the process of securing the crash site and identifying those killed. The aircraft crashed after the pilot reported an engine failure. That's according to an FAA spokesperson. Officials say the first call came in at around 7 p.m. Eastern Time and that there were several fatalities but did not provide a precise number. It's unclear how many people were on the plane. In all, four mobile homes were damaged in the crash. Clearwater is home to around 117,000 people. It lies about 24 miles west of Tampa on Florida's Gulf Coast. The incident is being treated as a serious traffic homicide crash. The FAA and National Transportation Safety Board are also investigating. Tower over there uh, was able to get a radio transmission from the pilot that he was having a mayday, 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 and uh, the aircraft went off uh, radar uh, about three miles north of the runway, which is in this location here. We're in the process of working through with FAA and NTSB to uh, identify the aircraft as well as um, the, the pilot or any other members that may have been over that aircraft. The first in a one-two punch of atmospheric river storms soaked Southern California with drenching rains yesterday. It flooded roads, toppled trees, and caused traffic accidents. A second heavier storm is due to roll into California this weekend. This one will bring high winds back to the northern part of the state with much heavier downpours in the south. The storm will also dump more snow in the mountains. The California Governor's Office of Emergency Services has activated its operations center. It also positioned personnel and equipment in areas most at risk from the weather. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office is reportedly working on a plea deal with former Trump Organization CFO Ellen Weisselberg. That's allegedly over a potential perjury charge related to New York civil probe into the Trump Organization's finances. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest in the former president's legal battles. Manhattan prosecutors are reportedly negotiating a plea deal with former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg. Anonymous sources told the New York Times, AP and ABC News talks relate to a potential perjury charge stemming from Weisselberg's testimony to the New York Attorney General's office and at Trump's civil fraud trial last year. Prosecutors are expected not to call Weisselberg as a witness as part of the deal. The unnamed sources claim talks are still in early stages and could fall apart. The former Trump CFO would need to concede he lied under oath. If Weisselberg does agree to a plea deal, it would be his second guilty plea in two years. He served 100 days in jail last year after pleading guilty to 15 tax fraud related charges in 2022. He is still on probation. New York Attorney General Letitia James accuses Trump and his business of overstating his net worth and property values to secure better loans and insurance rates. 
The lawsuit seeks $370 million from Trump and other defendants and a lifetime business ban in the state. A court spokesman said Thursday, a verdict in the case has been pushed back until mid-February. Judge Arthur Engren issued a summary judgment finding Trump liable for fraud in September last year. The judge had stated he was hoping to make a final decision on penalties by the end of January. The spokesman said the new timeline is a rough estimate that could still change. In London, a high court judge threw out Trump's lawsuit over the Steele dossier on Thursday. The document, authored by a British ex-spy, played a key role in the FBI's probe into debunked allegations of a conspiracy between Trump's campaign and Russia to swing the 2016 election. The judge stated there were no compelling reasons to allow the claim to go to trial. Meanwhile in Washington, Trump's federal election case has now been on hold for over 50 days, as the former president appeals on claims of presidential immunity. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. New campaign finance reports filed this week showed Trump spent almost $50 million on legal fees last year. The biggest super PAC behind Trump, MAGA Inc., sent nearly two-thirds of what it raised in the last half of 2023 to a group paying legal bills called Save America. That was around $35 million of the $48 million raised in the second half of the year. It's more than double what the super PAC sent in the first half of last year. Save America said it raised around $52 million total last year. In its FEC filing, $47 million was spent on legal fees. Trump's main campaign committee started this year with around $33 million. President Biden's campaign is starting with $46 million to spend. And despite the legal battles, a 2020 general election rematch between Trump and Biden is looking more and more likely. A new CNN poll shows Trump narrowly ahead of Biden in what's shaping up to be a close contest nationally. Overall, 49% of registered voters say they would back Trump if an election between the two were held today, while 45% support Biden and 5% say they'd vote for someone else. For voters under 35, 49% back Biden and 46% Trump. For non-white voters, the poll shows 57% Biden to 35% Trump. Many voters say their choice is more about Trump than it's about Biden. 68% of Biden supporters say they'd be voting against Trump rather than for Biden, while 60% of Trump supporters say they'd be voting more for him than against Biden. Both Trump and Biden continue to be deeply underwater in favorability ratings. 59% of Americans hold an unfavorable view of Biden, while 55% have a negative take on Trump. And 66% say Biden does not deserve re-election. More in politics, here to explain the dynamics of the South Carolina primary and what that could mean for the highly anticipated Republican contest is Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times. Thanks for being here, Lawrence. Given South Carolina's open primary, how likely is it that Democrats will vote in the GOP primary for Haley? Well, you're going to see some of that. I talked to some Democratic leaders yesterday, including a county chairman here in Richland County, which is Columbia, the uh, capital city here in South Carolina. And she said she knows some people who are planning to do that, and she's just not been able to talk them out of it. Uh, of course, Democrats don't want pe their people voting in the Republican primary, but she knows some women, especially, who are eager to see Trump opposed, and so they're going to try crossing over to vote for Haley. How many? We won't know until it happens. 
Well, Lawrence, we know that a South Carolina Republican Party chair said that they tried to get some crossover votes in the past, but it just wasn't happening. So is there any way that South Carolina governor, former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley has done to court these Democrats to try to win over their support? No, she I was at a Nikki Haley event yesterday and she was asked about this crossover voting and she simply said, I welcome anybody to vote for me. She made no direct appeal uh, to Democrats or independents, she simply said when asked the question, you know, I just welcome anybody to vote for me. Uh, so she knows that that has happened. It did happen in uh, New Hampshire and could happen here. She's not specifically courting those voters. Uh, there seems to be an autonomous movement, just people coming up with this on their own or telling their friends they want to do it. Okay, Lawrence. Well, We'll have to see, but Haley's really far behind Trump in these polls here in the Palmetto State. So even if a surprising number of Democrats were to turn out for her, does she have a chance to close the gap on Trump here? In terms of winning the primary, probably not. The gap is just too wide. She's been polling in single digits here. And uh, she was polling better than that in New Hampshire, had a good number of independents cross over there. And that got her up into the 40% you know, 41 or 2%, I forget the exact number, but no, it wasn't enough to close the gap. And, uh, you know, Republican officials tell me they, they just don't expect to see enough of that to really make a difference. Attorney General Alan Wilson told me yesterday, this is a completely different electorate down here. And he just doesn't think that's going to be a significant factor in the Republican primary. So Lawrence, if Haley does manage to win over some Democrat support here in the Palmetto State, is that likely to help give her campaign a boost if she does make it to the general election? Well, we saw that it did give her somewhat of a boost coming out of New Hampshire, where she scored better than expected, and that boosted her fundraising, which is key to any uh, presidential, any political campaign. So if she were to really do well here, it would probably help in that way. Either way, she says she's committed to staying in the race. So uh, she says she has the funding to do so. So it's really unclear how much it would help. A great showing, of course, always helps a politician. And on the Democrat side, President Biden still has a rock solid foothold in the Palmetto State, right? Yes, he is. Uh, polling. At the, they're, they're not even doing many polls because they're so lopsided. But yeah, something like 69% to 5%. He's expected to do very well. In fact, he's not even campaigning in the state this week. All right. Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Stay with us. Former President Trump appears to be cruising toward the GOP nomination and is polling ahead of President Biden in key swing states. But could Republicans still be facing an uphill battle? NTD's David Lamb joins us in the studio to discuss a so-called shadow campaign that allegedly shaped the 2020 election. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, a topic that divides public opinion about whether it is helping or hurting. A new law is banning these efforts in Utah. We hear from a group called Path Forward on their take. Good to have you back, everyone. Joining us now is NTD's David Lamb to talk about the upcoming presidential election. Welcome. An article recently published in the Epic Times mentions a well-funded cabal that shaped the 2020 election. And that term was first coined by writer Molly Ball in a piece for Time magazine. So, David, what is this so-called cabal and its impact? 
Yeah, so as you mentioned, a recent article by Kevin Stockland published in uh, Epic Times article. He's a former Wall Street banker, but he uh, quoted, so this uh, cabal is a powerful group of people that, um, that ranges from different industries and ideologies that work together to influence uh, public perception, rules, changing rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. Now, this term was first mentioned by Molly Ball in the Time magazine. She uh, wrote the article in February 4th, 2021, and she said these actors did not rig the election, but were trying to fortify it. Now, uh, there, so, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans were against this, um, you know, during the time when Trump uh, lost the presidency and Biden was declared the president, uh, Stop the Steel rallies came out. Um, people were holding those rallies saying that, you know, the, the ballots need to be recounted. And there was a lot of anguish and protests over that. Now, uh, so this cabal is a network of people. And what one, one thing that they did was put hundreds of millions of dollars for, towards armies of poll workers and to get millions of people to vote by mail for the first time. Now, this is a, um, an interesting issue because uh, Democrats want more people to vote. Uh, United States is, um, you know, has diversity and they want people to have a voice. Um, now, another thing I want to mention is uh, I went to speak to people in New York City the other day and asking them, you know, who they think the vice president uh, pick would be for Trump. Um, first, people said, uh, one person said he thinks Senator Tim Scott would be a pick because he's been seeing him a lot in the news. Um, another person said Vivek Ramaswamy because he shares the same values as Trump, you know, trying to make America great again, um, sharing those values. And then another person said actually she thinks Nikki Haley would be Trump's pick uh, because he, according to her, she needs, he needs those female, female votes. Mm. Now, uh, so back to this cabal. Uh, the strategy that they have been doing um, is loosening voter integrity law uh, and using left-wing foot soldiers to get uh, Democratic votes in key swing states. That's a very interesting topic and certainly something that we should think about. And I want to stay on topic, um, something related on voting. Tell us more a little, uh, about the phenomenon that we've been seeing in politics regarding you know, mass voting versus voting integrity. Yeah, yeah. So as mentioned, there's mass voting um, and voting integrity. So basically, there's there's been a push to lower um, basic voting protocols um, by pushing out absentee and vote by mail. And we and there's been a lot of that throughout the states, different states in in America. And that was to have, uh, and that brought the phenomenon of voter suppression. So whenever the word, you know, voter integrity was brought up. It's been censored in online and through social media. And that's what also brought up the Stop the Steal rallies as well. Now, uh, for analysis, um, some analysts say that there could be the issue of voter fraud concern, basically saying that voter ID and signatures have been lessened. And I've been to the, the polls as well, and sometimes I've seen my signatures or my ID card hasn't been checked, oh. you know, mm -hmm. when I submit a ballot. But now certain states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, the governors uh, don't want 
to have like strong election integrity laws. And according to a report by Brennan Center for Justice, 14 states enacted restrictive laws, while 23 states enacted expansive laws. And um, so back to the cabal, um, one, another aspect that they bring out is, um, you know, if Trump was to win the presidency in 2020, um, there were certain organizations would say that they had people ready to go onto the streets uh, to protest, um, but that wasn't the case since Biden won. Now, would, could this be happening again? Um, there is some speculation because uh, reportedly there were financial filings from, non from progressive nonprofit groups that could suggest that this might be repeated in 2024. Very interesting, David. Yeah, absolutely. And these DNC groups, according to this article here, are trying to loosen those state laws on voter integrity, and that's what, or on election integrity, and that's what you were mentioning here. And also, there are seven states that have already banned private money being injected into these elections, like those Zuckbucks, too. But there's certain ways for them to get around it. So we're going to have to keep a close eye on this. David Lamb, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And Utah passed a bill against diversity, equity, and inclusion programs this week. Governor Spencer Cox signed the bill into law yesterday. A member of the Path Forward Utah organization tells Entity's Daniel Monahan why she supports the measure. The Equal Opportunities Initiatives bill prohibits colleges and K-12 schools from discriminating against people based on race or gender. It will replace DEI programs with student success centers open to all students. The bill also prohibits the use of ideological commitment statements for hiring and training. Carrie Bartholomew is a member of the organization Path Forward Utah, an organization she says is driven by minorities who love America. We don't pretend that bad things have not happened and do not continue to happen in this country, but we don't focus on grievance. We focus on lifting our communities. Bartholomew says adversity in life gave her strength, and that had she just been given what she had to fight for, she would be a perpetual victim. I have seen, I lived in 18 foster homes in nine years. I have seen people that are wonderful, beautiful, charitable of every color, and I have seen people that are toxic and destructive of every color. You are not virtuous because you are a certain color or a minority, and you are not not virtuous because you happen to be white. Bartholomew says it breaks her heart to see young children subjected to present discrimination to replace past discrimination. She says the organization Path Forward aims to put a stop to that. They lift the voices of the, mar the doubly marginalized, because as minorities who don't toe the line, who don't believe in... Um, the narrative of oppressed oppressor who believe that America has something to offer and we don't need to dismantle it. We are the target. I was called melanin deficient. Um, people were called uh, the black face of white supremacy, right? Bartholomew believes that ideas like DEI are being used to divide people in the same way that Mao and Stalin divided people. Rod Hall is the assistant pastor of Faith Baptist Church in Layton, Utah. Hall says his parents were spat on, beaten, and fire-hosed while integrating white schools and churches in Georgia where they grew up. But you chose not to teach us that we were oppressed or any less because of the color of our skin. As a matter of fact, they taught us to the exact opposite, that we could become whatever we aspire to be if we would work hard for it. 
Hall says he can't support equal outcomes, as often defined in the word equity in DEI. Everybody doesn't get to the same place at the same time, and they shouldn't. No one should be catapulted from first base to, to home on the basis of the color of their skin, religion, or sexual orientation. Opponents fear that minority students could lose crucial support and suffer unintended consequences. Utah State Representative Angela Romero says taking out diversity, equity, and inclusion sends the wrong message. A group of Democrats wore black to mourn the passing of the legislation on the Senate floor last week. We are hurting and we join our communities and with marginalized communities and vulnerable communities through this process. The Equal Opportunities Initiatives bill was sponsored by State Representative Katie Hall. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Up next, U.S. regional banks adding to losses, sell-off for a second straight day. We asked the host of Entity Business about the reasons for the tumble. And social media platform TikTok set to lose thousands of songs from major artists, including Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift, as Universal Music Group decides not to renew their licensing agreement. Good to have you back. We also, have, we also have Entity Business host Don Ma with us here now to give us the latest updates from the financial world. So Don, what do you have for us today? All right, so what you need to know for today is that trouble could be brewing actually in the U.S. regional banking sector. And this is because uh, those stocks tumbled again yesterday for the second straight day. So the KBW Regional Banking Index saw its biggest single day decline since the collapse of Signature Bank back in 2023. We all remember that. And the KBW Regional Banking Index is a financial market index that tracks the performance of uh, regional banks in the U.S. So the frenzied selling uh, in bank shares has sort of rekindled fears uh, of concerns within uh, regional lenders. And, and the, the reason for the selling uh, of regional bank stock is because of New York Community Bank posting a, a very unexpected loss, uh, quarterly loss uh, last year, and its shares sank nearly 40%, which is very significant. Wow. Yes, and tell me more about this uh, New York Community Bank, because they, they, they made a drastic move as well. So uh, nearly uh, a year ago, New York Community Bank uh, sort of waded into the regional banking crisis. Uh, it bought up assets in the failed Signature Bank. So NYCB acquired uh, $34 billion of deposits, 13 billion loans, and 25 billion in cash from the failed bank. And with that purchase, uh, the bank uh, went into the $100 billion asset club. So uh, federal re regulations on that. Um, is stricter when you have that much amount in assets. So the last quarter, uh, the bank lost uh, somewhere around $185 billion. And its shares lost another 11% yesterday. And in a late Thursday email statement, the bank said, uh, 
it tried to uh, you know make, not make things sound so bad. It said uh, its, pr its share price will recover uh, as more actions are being taken. Uh, but the good news is that many analysts believe that uh, what's happening with NYCB is very unique. So they don't think it's a widespread thing that's happening across the entire sector. Very serious stuff, Don. I mean, other regional banks that are sinking are Western Alliance, Bancorp, and Citizens Financial Group. So we we'll have to keep a close eye. But there's a big number of there's a number of big earnings reports that came out late yesterday. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. So Amazon, Meta, Apple all reported earnings. Uh, so let's start with Amazon. On Thursday, uh, they reported better than expected revenue and profits for the last quarter ending in December. Uh, this was driven by strong consumer spending during the holiday season. Uh, so in a statement, Amazon's CEO called it a record-breaking holiday shopping season for the company. It saw 14% growth uh, in revenue compared to the same period last year. And its chief financial officer said that the company is seeing more purchases from Prime members. And uh, generative artificial intelligence has been a major a, a major area of focus for the company, uh, pouring up to $4 billion to an artificial intelligence company called Anthropic. Hmm. What about the other tech giants, Meta and Apple? Okay, so uh, Apple uh, reported its first sales growth in a year on Thursday, and it was boosted by, uh, in particular, particularly uh, by record revenue from its app store and uh, other services. Uh, but still, it's encountering difficulty, it seems like, in China. Uh, revenue there actually slid 13% from last year. Uh, as for Meta stock, uh, surged 14% yesterday. And the tech giants uh, reported that profit from the three months ending in December grew more than 200% year over year. Very surprising there. And the company also announced its first ever cash dividend of 50, per, uh, 50 cents per share. Wow. Yeah, Meta, very lucrative company. Of course, we saw Meta chief Zuckerberg take a grilling at the Senate hearing the other day. Now, there's probably some little bit more you have for us. Yeah, uh, so for the first time, an advertising company has settled an opioid lawsuit. So Publicis is a French marketing company that worked on Purdue Pharmaceuticals Oxycontin account from 2010 to 2019 and was accused of falsely marketing opioids as safe. Now, the agreed settlement of $350 million must be paid within the next two months. The company will also not take on any more opioid clients. Now, according to the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, they convinced doctors to overprescribe opioids, and the company said it didn't admit it to wrongdoing, but hopes the payment will help the effort to combat opioid addiction. And according to Ad Age, Publicis says their insurers will cover $130 million of the settlement. Right, um, and so there was another settlement in California uh, over COVID closures. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, let me just uh, quickly mention that as well. So California has agreed to a $2 billion settlement over earning loss for struggling students. And that happened during the COVID pandemic. The settlement is also for the mental health impact caused by school closures during that time. The lawsuit was filed by a group of parents, students, and community groups. They demanded more resources to help underserved students recover from pandemic-related educational losses. The federal government had granted public school districts uh, more than $190 billion between March 2020 and March 2021 for exactly that purpose. And the plaintiffs argued the state failed to make sure local districts targeted that money for students who actually needed the help the most. 
Yeah, students need education. Parents want their kids to make sure they get that. So Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. Thank you. Taylor Swift, Drake, Adele, Billie Eilish. These are just some of the artists whose music could soon disappear from TikTok. The social media app has lost the rights to license content from Universal Music Group, or UMG, one of the world's largest music conglomerates. Earlier this week, Universal Music, which represents hundreds of major artists, wrote a forceful open letter to TikTok. It accused TikTok of trying to build a music-based business without paying fair value for the music. UMG said the platform has repeatedly failed to protect artists' rights and interests. The music company said TikTok proposed to pay artists and songwriters at a rate that's a fraction of what other social media platforms like Meta pay and is allowing the platform to be flooded with AI-generated recordings, which UMG says poses risks to human artists. UMG said TikTok attempted to bully it into accepting a deal that was less than fair market value during negotiations to renew their contract, which expired on Wednesday. As of early Thursday, many popular songs had already disappeared from the social media platform's library including those from Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, Olivia Rodrigo, and more. While a singer's UMG tracks will be removed, songs licensed exclusively with other music giants like Warner and Sony-owned labels shouldn't be impacted. TikTok has pushed back against claims by UMG, accusing it of putting profit above the interests of their artists and songwriters. The short-form video platform is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance, it's long been accused of providing user data to the Chinese regime. Coming up, a three-year-old Australian boy gets caught inside a claw machine. How did he get in and how did police get him out? Here's the gripping story coming up. Is spring around the corner? It's Groundhog Day and Punxsutawney Phil makes, will make his prediction. How often do his predictions come true? Find out coming up. Welcome back. Getting inside a toy claw machine, a nightmare or a dream come true, depends on who you ask. Australian police rescued a three-year-old boy who did just that. Ethan Hopper's father said he looked away briefly and turned back to see his son climbing into the machine through the prize dispenser. Honestly, at first, it was funny. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh thinking, how has this happened? It was because he wasn't, he wasn't hurt, he wasn't sad, so it was easier to have a laugh when he's having the time of his life. And then reality sunk in at the point, how am I going to get him out? Brisbane police arrived on the scene quickly and instructed the boy to move to a corner. They smashed the glass window and pulled Ethan out unharmed. Ethan has promised his dad not to do it again and even got a prize after his adventure. Police later gave him a toy koala in a police uniform. 
And are you ready for an early spring? Well, today is Groundhog Day. And the country's most famous weather predictor, Punxsutawney Phil, apparently he saw no shadow, so it will be early spring. So how did Groundhog Day start? It's part of a tradition rooted in European agricultural life. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on the history of the event. Groundhog Day rose to fame after the 1993 movie of the same name starring Bill Murray. The day marks the midpoint between the shortest day of the year on the winter solstice and the spring equinox. It was a practice, a belief in Central Europe uh, that uh, the badger or the bear, hibernating animals, would come out on February 2nd. And uh, then uh, whether or not they saw their shadow would be a prediction about when uh, spring would come. And for farming communities, you know, before you have all the weather technology we have today, that would have been very important. Dutch settlers in the Punxsutawney area started celebrating the holiday in the late 1880s. I think it's just, you know, one of these uh, traditional rituals that people enjoy participating in that maybe take them away from modern life for 15 minutes. And Starting in the 1930s, groundhog clubs opened in eastern Pennsylvania. They were social clubs that intended to preserve Pennsylvania Dutch culture and traditions. About 15 remain active. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Who would have known about the background of that? Yeah. All right. That little fur they got. Yeah. yeah, and that movie, punk, you know, Bill Murray's movie, Groundhog yeah. Day, is hilarious. <laughs> That's right. All right. Uh, we will be back in just a couple of seconds, so stay with us for more. NTD News, the fastest growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world. Expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. President Biden sanctions Israeli settlers in the West Bank as he gives the green light for retaliation against the killing of three American soldiers. Their remains will arrive back in the U.S. today with the president and family members bearing witness. Months of negotiations around a border security deal now wrapping up. Senate Leader Schumer says details are coming soon, but mounting GOP opposition may mean it's already at a dead end. The Nevada primary and caucuses are coming up next week. More on why the state has two contests instead of one. A Michigan mom is on trial in connection with the school shooting rampage of her teenage son. Hear what she had to say in her defense on the witness stand. And police officers assaulted in New York City. We ask the NYPD's chief of patrol for his reaction to that and an update on the department's latest crime-fighting efforts. Tomorrow marks one year since the toxic chemical train derailment in Ohio. We take a look back as Biden plans a trip to East Palestine this month. A small plane slams into a Florida trailer park, killing several people and sparking a major fire. What authorities are saying about the incident? This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. 
Welcome. Today's Friday, February 2nd. Today's top news, President Biden will join the families of the three soldiers killed in Jordan last week as their remains are set to arrive back in the U.S. today. Also present will be First Lady Jill Biden, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Air Force General Charles Q. Brown, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. President Biden has green-lighted a response to the deadly drone attack by an Iranian-backed militia. And earlier we spoke to Brent Sadler, a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense, for more on Biden's plans for retaliation. What do we know about what Biden is planning in terms of retaliation? What could this look like? Well, well, it's very hard to really know because those are so sensitive of plans. But what we can do is look at what he's done in the recent past. And some of the indications are right now that they've been leaking information, which is a pattern of behavior of this administration, to forewarn the adversary, and I think in an effort to mitigate the loss of human life. That also, unfortunately, has a very unfortunate side effect of greatly diminishing the deterrent or the punishment aspect of these attacks that he may be already have authorized. And again, the name of the game or the objective of these attacks is one to deter future attacks against U.S. forces in Syria, Iraq, and throughout the wider Middle East by Iran and its proxies. The more that he telegraphs what he intends to do, the less likely that they're going to actually achieve that. It is hoped that they will attack widely uh, and go after individuals like the IRGRC commanders that are directing these attacks. Hmm. So, and the attack in Jordan, it happened over the weekend. So is there a worry that the longer time, the more time passes and the longer the White House waits, that the more, <clears throat> excuse me, preparation the, and time militant groups there actually have to move their assets or prepare? Um, what, what is the worry there? Well, I think it signals again that, that this administration is extremely reluctant to exercise any, I guess, self-defense in a broader sense, also deterrence against Iran. Uh, I think that's very indicative of what we're seeing. And you're right, the longer that they delay, the more time for the proxies and the Iranian forces that are in the Middle East to reposition, to bolster their defenses, or to redirect their attacks into another vector that we're not anticipating. Well, thank you so much, Brent Sadler, for your insights here. I appreciate it. Thank you. President Biden issued an executive order yesterday imposing financial sanctions and visa bans against four Israeli settlers in the West Bank. The order states the individuals were involved in acts of violence as well as threats and attempts to destroy or seize Palestinian property. We could see details of the Senate's bipartisan border deal as soon as today. This is House Republicans intensify their resistance. Entity's Melina Weiskop has more from the Capitol Hill with the latest developments. After months of negotiations in the Senate, a highly contested border bill will soon be released. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer saying they plan to post the full text of the bill no later than Sunday. These challenges at the border and in Ukraine and the Middle East are just too great. The leader is pushing for a vote by next week. But with growing opposition to the deal, it's unclear how much Republican support it will get. You're asking me a question I can't answer right now, which is what is the, the fate of it? House Republicans stand in strong opposition to it, pointing to rumors that it would allow for thousands of illegal crossings. That they want to allow 1.8 million individuals to still come into the country. You're legalizing the illegal activity that's taking place. Is that it allows for 5,000 entrants per day. That's, that's just, that's a non-starter. I don't even know why the Senate thinks that's a starter. 
Supporters, meanwhile, have tried to debunk this claim. So it's never been about codifying 1.8 million. That's patently untrue. It will be proven untrue in the text. Even if it can pass the Democrat-controlled Senate, its fate is grim in the House. Speaker Mike Johnson saying bluntly it has no chance of getting a vote. Democrat Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries leaving the door open to taking matters into their own hands. Would you consider uh, trying to get around Speaker Johnson if he doesn't bring it up to the floor? We have to evaluate the substance of the legislation before we decide the best procedural course of action. Now, the broader question here is if they aren't able to get this border security deal to President Biden's desk, how will Congress move forward with aid to Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan? Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Despite former President Trump's legal battles, a 2020 general election rematch between Trump and Biden is looking more and more likely. A new CNN poll shows Trump narrowly ahead of Biden in what's shaping up to be a close contest nationally. Overall, 49% of registered voters say they would back Trump if an election between the two were held today, while 45% support Biden and 5% say they'd vote for someone else. For voters under 35, 49% back Biden and 46% Trump. For non-white voters, the poll shows 57% Biden to 35% Trump. Many voters say their choice is more about Trump than it is about Biden. 68% of Biden supporters say they'd be voting against Trump rather than for Biden, while 60% of Trump supporters say they'd be voting more for him than against Biden. Both Trump and Biden continue to be deeply underwater in favorability ratings. 59% of Americans hold an unfavorable view of Biden, while 55% have a negative take on Trump. And 66% say Biden does not deserve re-election. The Nevada primary and caucuses will both be held next week. We take a look at why the state is holding two nominating contests. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the Silver State's process for choosing a presidential candidate. Nevada will hold two nominating contests in three days in early February to choose the Republican presidential nominee. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley will run in the February 6th primary that the Nevada Secretary of State is required to operate. Early voting for it began on Saturday, January 27th, and runs through Friday, February 2nd. All registered voters receive a ballot by mail. Former President Trump will run in the February 8th caucuses operated by the state Republican Party. Those will take place from 5 to 7.30 p.m. Caucus voting must be done in person and a valid government-issued ID is required. So why the two contests? Nevada had a long history of using caucuses to choose candidates, but that all changed in 2021. After problems during the 2020 Democratic caucus, the state switched to a primary. Republicans disagreed with the new system along with its vote-by-mail process. They tried suing to overturn the primary. When that didn't work, Republicans went ahead with a caucus. Vote Nevada Executive Director Sandra Cosgrove explains. So the, the head of the Republican Party in the state of Nevada said, we don't want to use the primary. We would prefer to have our caucus. And according to law and case law, they can do that. So technically, there will be a primary for Democrats, a primary for Republicans, and then a caucus for Republicans. But the winner of the caucus will be the person that gets the delegates to go to the Republican National Convention. 
Since Haley and Trump aren't going head-to-head, -head, Haley's biggest competition in the primary is an option for none of these candidates at the bottom of the ballot. Registered Republican voters in Nevada can vote in both the primary and the caucuses. Nevada's Republican Governor Joe Lombardo told the Nevada Independent that he will caucus for Trump on February 8th and write in none of these candidates in the presidential preference primary on February 6th. Because we have a closed primary and it will be people who are already registered as Republicans, we know that there's a lot of support for Donald Trump among registered Republicans. It's very likely that none of these candidates would get the most votes. An Emerson poll from January 26th to January 29th shows Trump with a very significant lead nationally of 73 points to Haley's 19 points. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just ahead, police officers assaulted in New York City. We asked the NYPD's chief of patrol for his reaction to that and an update on crime in the Big Apple. Just about one year ago, a terrible train disaster caused a massive fire and toxic spill in Ohio. We take a look back. Welcome back. Six suspects believed to be illegal immigrants have been charged in connection with an assault last Saturday on an NYPD officer and a lieutenant. Police say they are looking for at least eight more. One of the defendants is being held on a $15,000 cash bail. He's the first of the six suspects to be held on bail. Authorities are investigating four other defendants who were released without bail. Police sources say they boarded a bus to California using fake names. The suspects assaulted the officers near Manhattan Times Square. Police say the officers were attempting to disperse a disorderly group when they were attacked. The officers sustained minor injuries and were treated on the scene. The Manhattan DA's office says they now have additional surveillance footage and are continuing to speak to witnesses. And here with us now is NYPD Chief of Patrol John Chell to give us a reaction to that report and an update on crime in the Big Apple. It's really good to have you this morning. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Chief Chell, thank you for being here. My pleasure. So, first of all, tell me more about what kind of consequences these migrants would be facing and what is the NYP doing to prevent something like this in the future? Well, the consequences, that's the issue in the city right now. Uh, I've had 2,200 of my cops last year assaulted or attempted to be assaulted. And why is there so much emboldenment to this? Because there's no consequences. Mm. In this case here, you saw the video, 14 versus two, disgusting event. This should not happen in our society. And you know, our cops got off the ground, brushed themselves off. They still did their job by making some rate calls on the radio. So four people were quickly apprehended. But when those four people go in front of the judge, for some reason, bail wasn't requested. But the judge had an opportunity to step in and use her power and say, no, I'm going to remand them. But they walk out the door and they add insult to injury. You saw a couple yesterday who were arrested who literally gave us the finger to our city, our country, our, our community. So consequences, emboldenment, and, and it has to end. So what do we do to try to fix it? Just keep pushing, working, pushing, narrative out challenging our elected officials, challenging our judicial system to set consequences, set the example, and we won't have this problem. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and Chief Chell, I'll point out the PBA president said if we're not protected, namely the police, how are we going to protect the people in these neighborhoods? Now, can anyone give information on some of these attackers that haven't been caught yet? Well, there's two, three still outstanding, and there's four we have pictures of, but we don't, we don't do, know who they are. So we, we made seven arrests. Uh, one fine was set, uh, set, bail was set yesterday. Thank you for that. And as you mentioned in the prelim, we have three or four of them on a bus somewhere driving around this country. So this is a total breakdown in the system. Uh, this should not happen. And hopefully this event, and my cops are doing great, one's back at work and one will be back shortly, they will not be stopped. So this event here, maybe we could take this and parlay it into a better discussion of what's going on in the city and this country. Right, and definitely very intense working situations here in the city, but I also want to touch on something more general here, um, on if you can tell us a little more about the developments in crime numbers. Sure. So what kind of crime has been on the rise and what has been uh, on decline? All right, so we ended up 2023 down in crime uh, slightly, about 3%. Uh, a big win for us was our violent crime was really down. In the last two years, over 700 less people shot, murders below 400, shootings below 1,000. We're not taking a victory lap, but those for us are significant numbers. In terms of crime overall, the three crimes that really hurt us were stolen cars, mm -hmm. domestic violence assault, and assault on our police officers. Yeah. So those are the three that really drove that. Without those, not without those, like domestic violence is tough for us. It's a, it's a challenge, and we, we, we don't like our women victims being victimized, so we're always working on that. Stolen cars was spearheaded by TikTok. TikTok put out a video last year telling young kids how to steal two certain types of cars. And those two certain type of cars, Hondas and Kias, were plus 2,500 last year. Plus wow. 2,500. And then assaults on our police officers, we just discussed that, the emboldenment. Uh, this year, starting the month off, we're, we're continuing with downward a downward trend. The one crime that has a little bit of uh, uptick is robbery. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you do well in prior years, you gotta battle your success from prior years. So, so far we're still trending in the right direction. We lack where we're heading, but we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, and the emboldenment, like you mentioned. I mean, when we see what happened in Times Square and then these people just get off the hook, that's obviously going to cause a ripple effect here, would you say? Absolutely. You look at assaults on police officers. You look at cars driving reckless in the city. You look at motorbikes driving reckless in the city. That would not happen if there were consequences. And this mm -hmm. only started happening a couple of years ago when, I, when our world changed. Different laws set upon us, laws we don't agree with, bail reform. You know, it's changed the game, but we're going to continue to do our job and, and, and try to suppress. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, uh, thanks for having me. It's been great. Love the studio. <laughs> Chief Chow, thank you so much for coming in. No problem. Thank you. And tomorrow marks one year since the catastrophic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. The wreck caused a massive fire in the area and spilled toxic chemicals in a small town of roughly 4,700 people. President Biden is scheduled to visit the town to mark the anniversary. And today's Daniel Monahan has a look back on the disaster. The train of three locomotives and 150 freight cars was headed from Illinois to Pennsylvania when it derailed. The National Transportation Safety Board said 20 of the cars were carrying hazardous materials, including 10 that derailed. The NTSB said 38 cars in total left the tracks, and the ensuing fire damaged an additional 12. Over the weekend following the derailment, emergency crews evacuated residents from their homes within a mile of the fire. We tried to stay around as long as we could, but then the law came around and was enforcing it. They chased us out. Days after the wreck, Ohio officials said they would carry out a controlled release of hazardous chemicals 
at the site of the train derailment. I gotta move because I'm not safe being here. Evacuees kept complaining of chemical smells. The creek by my house had a very, very strong chemical smell to it. Um, I went in my house, it was worse. After railroad crews drained and burned off a toxic chemical from five tanker cars, residents were allowed to return to their homes on February 8th. Many in the area complained of headaches and irritated eyes and noted that chickens, fish and other wildlife died off. Despite that, state health officials insisted to residents that East Palestine was a safe place to be. President Biden is expected to highlight the federal government's response to the disaster during a trip to East Palestine this month. Former President Trump criticized Biden for finally visiting the town, calling it a year late. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Several people were killed Thursday evening after a small plane crashed into a trailer park in Clearwater, Florida. Authorities say they're in the process of securing the crash site and identifying those killed. The aircraft crashed after the pilot reported an engine failure. That's according to an FAA spokesperson. Officials say the first call came in at around 7 p.m. Eastern time and that there were several fatalities but did not provide a precise number. It's unclear how many people were on the plane. In all, four mobile homes were damaged in the crash. Clearwater is home to around 117,000 people. It lies about 24 miles west of Tampa on Florida's Gulf Coast. The incident is being treated as a serious traffic homicide crash. The FAA and National Transportation Safety Board are also investigating. Tower over there uh, was able to get a radio transmission from the pilot that he was having a mayday, 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 and uh, the aircraft went off uh, radar uh, about three miles north of the runway, which is in this location here. We're in the process of working through with FAA and NTSB to uh, identify the aircraft as well as um, the, the pilot or any other members that may have been over that aircraft. And the mother of a Michigan school shooter testified in her own defense yesterday, saying she had no role in buying or storing the handgun used to kill four students in 2021. She said she wasn't with her husband and son when they purchased the gun. I guess when I was out shopping, they said, well, let's go try on Black Friday, see if we can get one on sale, or if there's any deals going on. They, they just showed me it was on the kitchen counter and then, um, my husband put it up and we went to the Christmas tree farm. Jennifer Crumbley and her husband James are accused of making a gun accessible at home and ignoring Ethan Crumbley's mental health needs. They are the first parents in the U.S. to be charged in a school shooting committed by their child. James Crumbley faces trial in March. Ethan, now 17, pleaded guilty to murder and is serving a life prison sentence. The teen was 15 at the time of the shooting. Authorities say he pulled a gun from his backpack and shot 11 people at Oxford High School in November 2021, killing four students. Ethan was with his father when the handgun was purchased just four days earlier. Yeah, school safety is just so important. And storing the gun safely as well is something that has to be uh, looked at very well. All right, um, at this point, we're ending our show here, but we'll keep you updated, of course, with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.